It's the Messiah Community Radio Talk Show. This is Michael James Lauren with you. You know Steve Jobs? Well, if you know Steve Jobs, you're going to know our next guest. His name is John Couch. And he's Apple's first vice president of education. He's got a book out called Rewiring Education, How Technology Can Unlock Every Student's Potential. He joins us. Welcome to the program. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Our sponsors with over 90 years experience in developing audio electronics. Bayer Dynamics stands for innovative audio products with the highest sound quality and pioneering technology. Two business divisions, consumer and installation, provide tailored solutions for professional and private users. All products are developed in Germany and primarily manufactured by hand. From headphones to microphones and conference and interpretation systems. For more information, please visit north-america.com. BearDynamic.com and by Vocal Booth to Go carries a complete line of products and accessories specifically designed for voiceover actors, audio professionals, podcasters, producers, and studio owners to help them get professional results for their clients. It's your go-to place for sound treatment, soundproofing, portable, and mobile vocal booths. Visit VocalBoothToGo.com for more information. And by Hamilton Stands, founded in 1883 in Hamilton, Ohio, Hamilton Stands is the oldest music and instrument stand maker in the world. They offer a broad range of sheet music stands, band and orchestra instrument stands, and combo stands, including mic stands, guitar and keyboard stands, and accessories. In fact, the broadcast you're listening to is made using a Hamilton stage rocker mic stand. Visit HamiltonStands.com. And Oralex Acoustics has one mission, to make you sound your best. Thousands of satisfied Oralex customers have experienced improved acoustics, along with free expert advice, total sound control products from Oralex. Enjoy widespread use among prominent artists, producers, engineers, and corporations worldwide. Remember, it's not your gear, it's the room. Visit Oralex.com for more information. And great audio starts with great gear. And Zoom's 30-year reputation promises quality and affordability. Visit zoom-na.com today for recorders, audio interfaces, effects pedals, and more. We're Zoom, and we're for creators. Isn't that a wonderful introduction that you have That you, for your whole life? You are the first vice president of education for Apple. I mean, people don't even get there, you know what I mean? But that's your title. You ever get tired of hearing that? Well, actually, that's the latest title. My first title was Director of uh, New Products, and six months later, I was Vice President of Software. So wow. you, could say, you could say I was the first uh, product market, <laughs> marketing manager and the first uh, software, uh, VP of Software Engineer. It's really amazing. I mean, you're a part of history. I was going on uh, YouTube and watching some really, you know, uh, landmark type of uh, videos of you when you were real young and talking about uh, Apple and Steve Jobs. And so... I mean, you're part of history, really, yeah, when just, you think about it. The way, what are you, the 45th uh, Apple employee? 54th. But, 54th. You know, just makes me old, that's all. <laughs> what a legacy, though. And you got a great book out here, again, Rewiring Education. And so uh, is this kind of like the culmination of your life, thinking about uh, you know, how education and, and, uh, and technology are intertwined? Or have you had many books in you and you just got it out? Uh, actually, I wrote a college textbook uh, after my years at Hewlett-Packard on compiler construction. And uh, after 16 years of, as Apple's VP of Education and raising four kids and putting them all through college, by the way, at a quarter million dollars each, wow. which, is, which is another topic, right? <laughs> and, and having 16 grandkids, I, wow. just, I just felt that I wanted to start a new conversation. Hmm. Uh, a conversation of 
an understanding that this is a generation of students who've grown up in a digital world, unlike myself, by the way. Um, and that the, the old pedagogy of memorization, which was fundamentally created in 1912 for the factory workers, is no longer valid. And I wanted to share the pedagogy that Apple with others developed around challenge-based learning, which said that our classroom needs to be relevant to the students. It needs to be creative. In other words, they're more than just consumers of, of content. Uh, they can create now. Uh, it needs to be collaborative. Ligorsky's work says that we learn from each other. When I went to school, collaboration was called cheating. Um, <laughs> That's right. Because every project was a single-person project. Uh -huh. and, fi and finally, it needs to be um, challenging. Uh, students like challenges. So um, the, goal of, the goal of the book was really to start a conversation. And as, as you know, the last chapter is Gandhi's quote that says, be the change. That's right. So, well, you know, what's amazing, you draw from the past and the future. I guess you have to kind of do that and, uh, and talking about education. And so uh, you have a really remarkable story. I mean, because part of the story is that you left Apple to be part of a Christian school. And what, what happened with that? I mean, I feel, was there, was there like a, uh, an epiphany? Did God call? He called you out of Apple, did he? Yeah. Um, it, it was interesting because... You know, I mean, Apple was the fastest growing company in American history at the time. It went from a zero to a billion in five years. Wow. And, um, you know, I, I was the typical uh, prideful individual uh, justifying working, you know, seven days a week and 10, 12 hours a day to put food on the table and pay for my kids' colleges. Uh and then all of a sudden I realized that, wow, you know, with Apple going public that uh, I can no longer kid myself that that was the reason I was working. I was working because I enjoyed it. It was euphoric. We were in magazines. Uh, and I, I think the turning point really was the night, the weekend really, where we introduced Lisa, which was the first graphical interface machine. That's right standing ovations at Boston Computer Society, and then on to New York in the penthouse of the Carlisle Hotel, entertaining you know, uh, the news magazines and, and <laughs> journalists. And I remember at the end of a very, very long day, uh, you know, sort of feeling like, is that all there is? Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, it was like, I, I, thought, it, I thought it would be more exciting than this. <laughs> and and I had this sweeping feeling come over me that said, I want to be home with my family, uh, which I hadn't been uh, in those early years. And so I had to make a decision that, you know, what was important in my life? Was it my family or was it, you know, the Apple notoriety? And uh, I couldn't justify working for money because the the public offering provided that yeah that's right so, so i uh you know i i decided to to just take some time off and i moved my family to uh san diego and uh i, I honestly i was just praying for some guidance in my life and i found myself going on a number of uh, christian uh, television shows 
and fundamentally feeling like a Christian cheerleader mm. uh, where people were making money because of my testimony. I see. Uh, and so, I, you know, the Lord gave me a very simple message. He gave me the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he said, if you want to know what you might, the purpose of your life is, you need to meet the present need. Hmm. And, and at that case, the need was this, was this small Christian school in North County that had been um, shut down and uh, sort of reclaimed, if you will, by the parents, uh, trying to make a go at it. Uh, and uh, so I uh, offered to, uh, well, they asked me to go on the board. I agreed. And it was a little disappointing because they, they had no vision. Yeah. Uh, you know, and one of the things that I learned very early with Apple and working with Steve is it was Steve's vision that of the mental bicycle in the same way that we have the talent to build tools to amplify our physical ability. He saw the, you know, technology as a way to amplify our intellectual ability. That's right. Not to take us where we've already been, but to explore, to create, to innovate. And so I offered to write them a, a business plan. And I, you know, I had just spent five years in Bible study fellowship and realized that in the old Testament, you know, the Lord, the Lord um, delivered his vision to Moses and Jacob directly. But in our New Testament world, the vision can be found in the Word. So I scoured the Word until I came up with Ephesians 3.20, where it talks about the power of the Holy Spirit allowing us to do things so much more abundantly. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, that's certainly what I want for my kids. And so that became the vision of the school. And the purpose being to develop the Christian leaders of tomorrow, tomorrow opening the door for technology. And um, I thought I was only going to be there about six months to finish the business plan. And I ended up spending 10 years. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's, thank you for explaining all that because it's an, a remarkable story. People just don't know, do they? They think, oh, if I knew Steve Jobs and I was the, the 54th employee of Apple, the, you know, I would just uh, be on, a, on an island of Fiji somewhere. But that's not, that's not true. That's not how it all works uh, all the time. And so this was a real calling. I mean, people who knew you, especially Steve Jobs, they were they kind of like, hey, what's going on? Like any, any calling, you know, it's, what's happening? You know, you know it, I thought we were doing of, pretty good. <laughs> it's, it's kind of ironic because, it, you know, Steve had this uncanny um, understanding of the future. Mm. And when I left, he, he really told me, he said, look, this is a good thing because you can now take some of the lessons of the business world into the education world. And when you return... No, think about this. This is 10 years before I, this is 15 years before I came back. And he says, when you return, you can bring some of the lessons of the education world back to the business world. Hmm. So Steve was thinking way ahead. Of yeah, I was going to say, it's like that back to the future, right? He's just yeah. waiting for you when you come back. <laughs> yeah. And one of, the, one of the big lessons that I learned at the school, and it was consistent with what I learned when I taught at Cal, and I taught graduate courses at Cal State San Jose was that every individual was uniquely gifted. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, and that our educational system needs to recognize that and, and, and empower that. Um, my daughter probably, you know, communicated it to me more succinctly when she took her first art course in her sophomore year at 
uh, San Diego State, and she was a psychology major. And her sorority sister said to her, what are you doing in psychology? You've got this natural gift for art. So she put a portfolio together and transferred to Parsons and became a fashion designer. Wow. And she, t- she told me, she said, you know, Dad, for 14 years I pushed the education ball up the hill. And it wasn't until I discovered where I was gifted and, what my, and where my passion was that I can now chase the ball down the hill. I'm so glad that you said that because I'm, I'm reading here in your book, it's uh, page 28. I often hear people, you say, describe kids who struggle through school, get bad grades, or drop out with words like lazy or dumb. Like, I've never heard of that. I mean, I, I had ADHD, ADHD, and uh, everyone called me dumb. My mom, I, you know, and I wish there was, I knew that I was smart, though. And so the, the, you say those who are more sympathetic might instead cast the blame for kids like Todd and his parents, lack of attention, poor teachers, or perhaps a lack of funding for intervention programs. And so, yeah, I mean, everyone really is very different. And so they... They have a very rigid kind of method. I mean, for a while, my parents thought I was a genius. I just memorized flashcards. And then you get into uh, seventh grade, eighth grade. Yeah, and exactly. Have to, uh, it was like, I'm telling you, it was like I walked into another world. All of a sudden, there's an abstract world out there with numbers, and I didn't know what hit me. It was like a ton of bricks. And yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what's, what's really interesting is we have a tendency to project our own experiences on the student. So, you know, if we grew up in a, in a poor environment, well, obviously it's the poor environment. Or if we were lazy, then the student's lazy. I think, you know, the story, Todd Rose, who's a good friend of mine who wrote uh, The End of Average, uh, you know, dropped out of high school with a D minus, and now he runs Harvard's Individuality Lab. Uh, <laughs> re- remarkable story. And his next book called Dark Horses is really uh, – case studies of individuals who didn't fit the mold and yet are very successful today. Well, you know, I think about even as a kid, I mean, I took my toys apart and uh, I got punished for it. And I think, wait a minute, if I only, (laughs) if they only only foster that, so this is great. Now, you know, it's okay. You have to put it back together now, but you know, go ahead and try to do it instead of being punished for, for stuff like that. But uh, Uh, yeah, it's uh, the world's not fair, is it? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's funny because my daughter sent me a picture of about six vehicles that her 10-year-old put together. And then she showed me a picture of a floor with about 5,000 loose Lego pieces. <laughs> yeah, right. And I thought, okay, the creativity somehow came out of that, of that pile of Legos. And we're not allowed to do that. You know, we, no. can't, color, we can't color outside the lines. Yeah, right. You know, people don't like messes. and But, you know, I looked at the smartest kids in school and they made messes. And, and the ones we'll get to in a minute who, you know, were into computers and computer programming. And they didn't mind making mistakes. You know, and in fact, I, I think I remember one kid said that, uh, you know, the more mistakes you make, the more you learn when it comes to computers. And uh, so well, you, you bring up a great point, And I think we hit on it in the book is that our educational system doesn't allow failure. Right. And you know, how innovative can one be if you don't have some failures along the way, if you're not stretching yourself and the technology. Hmm. So that, that's, that's another big, you know, I think the book talks about a dozen different challenges that we have in K-12 today. Uh, everything from, you know, we need a new assessment 
model for assessment. We need a new set of ABCs. We need to treat the teachers as professionals, not union workers. Right. Ongoing professional development because here comes AR, here comes Internet 2.0, you know, here comes all of these technologies that are going to find their way in the classroom because it, the kids are going to bring them in. I think, you know, I want to ask you something because, I mean, you're tight on it. Are you still at Apple? Okay, it's a, it's a kind of a, yeah, I'm, I'm still being paid by Apple for the rest of this year to complete uh, statewide talks that I give to superintendents and board associations. Um, but Apple, at the last minute, decided that they didn't really want to set a precedent about, of an employee, particularly a vice president, writing a book. I see. And so they simply said, well, why don't we move you from a W-2 to a 1099? Mm. So, so I, I, you know, I just, I, I can, I still get a little bit of salary for the rest of this year, but uh, I am now free to uh, invest in startups. I, I, I work a lot with young, you know, young kids, young startups. I'm, I formed a nonprofit organization called uh, beyondschool.com with the idea of hopefully having a challenge-based learning environment from about age three through high school that somehow I can make free around the world for those less fortunate. Yeah, I think you know what you're doing, you know? <laughs> I think you could be a huge help. and uh, it's, it's still a challenge, you know? Um, yeah, things are always that's changing. Something. That's the fun part. Yes, it is. And you mentioned that, you know, the next thing from Snapchat, I mean, everything is changing and people are, it's this constant evolving and boy, you've seen it happen, huh? I mean, well, one technology after another, just evolving. And uh, Steve Jobs, uh, of course, understanding the value of technology and education. And that's what you had a, a kindred spirit about. And so uh, you guys were kind of close, weren't you, one time or, or probably yeah. for a long time, I would say. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, Steve would, Steve would be the first to say that education was in your DNA, in, in our DNA at Apple. And, in fact, there's a quote in the book where Steve says, if I could put one computer in a school and one student found it, it would change their life forever. So Steve really was passionate about, particularly um, elementary and high school. You talk about undersell and over-deliver, right? He always did that. <laughs> I mean, like just one computer, right? You know, and, uh, and people, there are thousands and hundreds of thousands. And, uh, well, well, that was the first marketing program, right? Uh, uh, the first marketing program was Kids Can't Wait, where Steve went to Washington, D.C. and walked the halls of Congress and uh, trying to convince them to, to give a tax break for computers donated to um, middle schools and whereas they had a tax break for universities and came back very disappointed but California heard about it and Governor Brown say deja vu um, hmm. uh, you know, basically uh, signed a bill that allowed us to give an Apple II to every school in the state of California remarkable and that was you know that was probably the biggest marketing program I think I think another big one was when I came back in 2002, after many, many years of declining educational revenues, recognizing that only 6% of the machines in K-12 could run OS 10, and yet Steve was bank, you know, banking the company on OS 10. And so we created a program called 10 for Teachers, where we offered a free copy of OS 10 to every teacher in North America. 
And I remember asking Steve, because I was going to spend my whole marketing budget that year on that program. I said, how many teachers do you think will take us up on this? And he says, oh, maybe about 15,000. 500,000 teachers <laughs> wow. took, took us up on a free copy of OS X. Hmm. And then sent it over to the IT department and said, you know, quit whining and support us. Remarkable. Remarkable. And I mean, and the interesting story, I mean, you started at Hewlett Packard, okay? You were, uh, I believe, you know, a high rising executive, if you will. Is that correct? In Hewlett Packard? Yeah, yeah. I was probably going to be the youngest uh, engineering manager in the company. Okay. Uh, but I had met Steve, was enticed by Steve. Um, you know, I was still young enough to, uh, to have not settled in. And uh, besides that, uh, besides being excited about a $2,500 computer versus the quarter million dollar ones that I was working on, he came into my home on a Friday night and he put an Apple II on a kitchen table and told my then four-year-old son, Christopher, you can have this if your dad comes to work for me. I love that. I love that part. <laughs> so I was, I was stuck. There was no way Christopher was letting that computer go back. Because it sounds like such a risky thing, but I mean, you, you must have known it. I mean, or did you? Or was he, was he just that magnetic, like you've heard uh, the gentleman for the marketing who talked about it when, uh, you know, you want to come uh, or, you know, sell sugar water or, you know, or work yeah. for me. So um, yeah. you, you must have known that something, he was something special and, uh, and that Apple was something special. Yeah, I think all three, really. Uh, one, Apple was special, had great people. Mike Markula, uh, Steve was unique. And I also knew that I had a, you know, graduate degrees in computer science when no one else did. And in fact, when Apple, when I did my interview at Apple and they asked me, what do you think the biggest challenges of, of Apple are? You know, I said, one, can you make enough of them? And two, uh, software, because you guys don't even know how to spell it much what's, what it is. <laughs> and, uh, and that proved true because nine months after I was in the company, I was asked to take over the VP of software and build that organization. Were you at Apple when Steve Jobs left and he was at Next? Were you still at Apple at that point or did you leave at around the same, a little bit before he did? I, I left a little bit before he did. A number of the executives left when Scully came on board. Um, and, um, but, you know, we stayed in touch and I think it was, it was, a little bit less than two years before Steve realized that, that John probably wasn't the right guy for the company. No kidding. That's, uh, that's uh, infamous and, of course, uh, famous uh, the knowledge on that, that, uh, you know, I think I, I hired the wrong guy. And, uh, but, I mean, what a, what a comeback. I mean, <laughs> and, and then you get a call from Steve Jobs uh, when he did come back and said, I want you back. I mean, uh, it's like lightning striking twice in your life. Well, actually, I'd gotten two calls to come back to Apple when Steve wasn't there. But when I came in and interviewed with Gil Emilio and some of the other people, I just, I, I, they said, There's, these people just don't understand the Apple culture. I, I really believe that only Steve could have turned a company around. Yes. You know? Oh, for sure. I mean, well, even now, I mean, and, and do people ask you, you know, uh, uh, forgive me, because you're getting paid, so I think I know the answer, that, you know, do you have a good relationship with Tim Cook? I think so. I mean, I worked for Tim for 10 years. I uh, Probably one of the best bosses I've ever had, he and Mike Markula. Um, 
But when Steve passed away, they kind of undid what Steve did. And in other words, Steve, Steve didn't know whether the challenge was a marketing challenge or a, or a sales challenge. And so he, he broke the rules and gave me both sales and marketing. And we, we grew the, the business to almost $10 billion in, in 10 years. And when he passed away, obviously, Tim took on a lot more responsibility. So he took the sales team and he threw it back into a sales organization and threw us back into the marketing organization. Mm. So we kind of lost the, the, the champion, if you will. Oh, yes. Uh, and uh, I had a very a good working relationship with Barry Wright, who was our VP of, of, of sales. And uh, that's why we were so, so successful. Uh, but yeah, Tim is a remarkable man, different than Steve, obviously, uh, much more into, you know, diversity and net zero energy and, and, and some pedestals that he's created for the company, whereas Steve was product, product, product. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, and we're still waiting, aren't we? <laughs> we're, you know, we're, we're kind of almost, uh, we, if he could come back. I mean, because, uh, you know, the kind of visionary that he was uh, coming up with, you have to see it, you know. And you mentioned in the book that he was talking about, Steve Jobs was talking about things that didn't exist yet, but he was talking about it as if they did. Yeah, no, he was, he, not only was he remarkable in terms of looking into the future, but his timing as to when something should come out. Um, for instance, the multi-touch capability was actually developed for the iPad. And I, as you know, the iPad came out after the iPhone. That's right. So they borrowed that technology from the iPad, put it on the iPhone, which I, you know, obviously was, was the right thing to do because the iPhone opened up all international markets for Apple's education business. Yeah, it's still fun to go on YouTube and watch the uh, presentation of the conference, if you will, where that was unveiled and see the people's faces. I mean, you talk about, of course, for kids and uh, rewiring education, the name of your book, again, how technology can unlock every student's potential. But adults turn into kids when they saw this is a computer, this is a phone, this is the Internet. <laughs> Their eyes like bulged out like the cartoons. Yeah. Well, the key, the key, if if you look at the iPod and you look at the iPhone, it wasn't just the hardware; it was the ecosystem that they operated in, right? Because the iPod had iTunes, and the iPad and the iPhone had the App Store. So it, it basically created an ecosystem, which is what I was trying to do with the iPad and iTunes U and all the software around that was really to create an ecosystem for learning. And I do believe we, we, we changed the way people can create books and distribute books and change the academic model for, for digital books. So there's still a long way to go uh, in, that, in that developing that ecosystem because, in a sense, the ecosystem should tell the teacher what the student doesn't know or the results of say their Northwest Educational Assessment Test, and then deliver to that student the appropriate app or learning activity so the student can overcome their gap. Mm -hmm. Or if the student is really smart, deliver to that student a challenging uh, learning environment. And that should all be part of the ecosystem. And assessment should be real time. We shouldn't be taking these kids out of the classroom for you know, three hours of testing. It should be just part of that overall ecosystem. So, I just, yes. 
Well, I was going to say, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm just saying. So a lot of people refer to that as as a uh, personalized learning, but yeah, I use the term targeted pedagogy, uh, coming from the genomic days of my genomic days when we tried to find uh, unique protein tailored to your individual DNA. So it was called targeted medicine, and I go, wow, that's the same challenge we've got in education. <laughs> How do we, how do we, how do we, one, recognize where the gap is, and two, dynamically deliver something that that student, that's within that student's ability to complete. So we've got, we've got a ways to go yet. You talk about motivation in your book. You mentioned that, you know, motivation is probably the most important thing that if a kid or someone, anyone who is motivated, they will find a way to succeed. If it doesn't matter if it's the uh, uh, bad school or teacher, they'll find a way. And I think when, uh, you know, myself included, you had a, you were sent to the learning lab, okay, because you were slow, okay? And, you know, you, you have your head hung low. And these kids today with computers now, you know, are having more fun. I think that everybody should have fun with learning. I mean, it should be associated with learning, as you say, not failure or guilt or any of those things. And so that's a big impetus behind your book, that it should really be uh, an incredible experience, learning. Yeah, it's a journey. And you're motivated by intrinsic motivation, not extrinsic motivation. And if you think about school, it's pretty much extrinsic motivation, you know? You're going to read this chapter. You're going to answer the questions in the back of the book, and there's going to be a test on Friday. <laughs> and you're all going to do it at the same time, at the same pace. I got goose pimples right there just thinking about when I had to do that back, back in the day, you know, instead of being like a fun, uh, fun type of thing. So, um, well, I want to ask you now, so, I mean, where is it all heading? You must get that all the time. And by the way, the foreword of your book uh, by Steve uh, Wozniak, who are, you're friends with him, I, I imagine. Is that right? Yeah, very close friends with Steve, and his wife worked for me for 15 years, so we, we do a lot together, and uh, Steve, as you know, is passionate about education as well, and mm -hmm. actually took some years off and, and taught in fifth grade. And, and you say in the book, I mean, it was, he loved it more than anything. Yeah, yeah, well, Steve's a kid, you know? I mean, you know, he's got an IQ of over 200. Uh, <laughs> he, he's a, he's a, a trickster. He... Um, it's always carrying magic shows around with him. Uh, when he goes to China, he'll take two days and build a, his own special server in Raspberry Pi so that they can't block his emails. You know, there, <laughs> there's only one Steve, right? <laughs> well, you know, you hear about that and uh, playful and, and almost childlike. But, uh, I mean, it's, again, when it came to money, that wasn't enough to keep him either. It was his passion for teaching his passion for uh, seeing the eyes open of people where they could learn and have an experience. And, uh, but I mean, can I ask you a question? What, how would you say, I mean, gee whiz, it's a tough question, but the evolution with just building block words that you started here and now you got to hear, what, what would the journey kind of be like in a few sentences as far as your evolution at Apple? Well, you know, I love Steve's commencement speech where he, he says you can only, you know, you can only connect the dots looking backward. And, and that's what I'm doing right now. I'm actually about 40 pages into some notes called My Life at Apple and the Steve that I Knew. Hmm. Because it's just, uh, it's unbelievable uh, just the journey and how, how decisions were made, how I ended up in different places. 
uh, you know, how, how, how does a 30 year old end up managing, you know, the Lisa uh, division with, with manufacturing, marketing and engineering when you're a software major. Right. Um, but um, you know, it, it really, it, to me, it really gets back to Steve's ability to create a vision, you know, the vision of the mental bicycle, the amplifier for our physical ability uh, to change, you know, to change, empower us as individual. And if you think about it, that vision is still in place today at Apple. Whether you're building a personal computer or an iPad or an iPhone, or whatever else they come up with, it's that vision that clarifies what you're doing. And um, I think that's why they're still successful. Uh, it, I, you know, I, I was in the company the first five years when we, when we grew to a billion, which was the fastest growing. I came back and the company did 5.8 billion. Wow. I, I left at 250 billion. You know, I mean, it's... You, it's, you can probably hear my Adam's apple go gulp. <laughs> Well, the other thing I, I kind of learned along the way was, was you know, I remember Tom Peters saying, stick to your knitting, right? Well, the iPhone wasn't in Apple's knitting, you know, or I could, hear, I could hear the business school classes saying, well, when you get to a particular size, you have to divisionalize. Well, Apple's not a division. It's still functionally organized. So we kind of broke, you know, all the quote rules yeah. that were in place. The mind wants to grow. The mind wants to learn. And it's well, I, yeah, I learned an early lesson at Hewlett-Packard, and that was HP came out with the first handheld calculator. It was called the HP 35, and it cost $395, and it, all it did was add, subtract, multiply, and divide in reverse Polish. And the, mar- <laughs> and the market research came back and said, don't build it because nobody wants it. But Bill Hewlett said, well, I want it, and furthermore, I want it to fit in this shirt pocket. Nine months after its introduction, it was doing $180 million in revenue. And the largest slide rule company was out of business because they thought they were in the slide rule business, not the computational business, and they did not see how technology would mm. impact that, all right? So Emerson, Ralph, Ralph Waldo Emerson has a great quote, and I think it goes something like this. People can only, to see what they, can only perceive what they see. And I remember when we brought the steam locomotive engine into this country two centuries ago, the first pictures in the newspaper were the steam locomotive engine hauling stagecoaches. Rather than understanding that the steam locomotive engine would usher in a whole new uh, infrastructure for transportation. Uh, and, And so I went to Apple with that. So I was very comfortable with Steve not doing market research because market research is only valid in an existing market. Mm-hmm. And Steve was always trying to create new markets. I mean, do you marvel at that as far as just the experience of knowing him and just the experience of, I mean, uh, you hear a court diff- different composites of this man in different uh, various uh, biographies. You knew him personally. You were friends with him. I'm in as well. And so uh, did the conversations, they, Go outside of just business. I mean, as far as you oh, know, this. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, we were on a plane one time in um, in Italy, and uh, we had boarded the plane, and we were sitting there, and uh, they made an announcement that uh, there was a bomb threat, and so would we please sit still while they removed the luggage? 
And, you know, Steve and I looked at each other and he said, well, they ought to be removing us, not the luggage. <laughs> and, and I think it kind of got him upset a little bit because as we were flying, we did take off. You know, he said to me, he goes, you know, John, I really admire you. You're married and you have a family and you work as hard as I do. He says, I'd really like to get married one day. Where do you think I could find a good wife? Hmm. You know, and I said, well, Steve, you know, I found mine in college, but you didn't go to college. I said, maybe in church, but you don't go to church. And we went down about three or four of these uh, uh, and looked at each other and said, it's impossible, Steve, you know, because, you don't, you know, people, Steve didn't know whether people were interested in him because if he was Steve Jobs and had the money rather than just him as a person. I imagine. I'm, you know, you think about that. If it, that crosses you, I don't know. I mean, I, I see him like as Thomas Edison, you know, just always thinking of, but he has, he's a person. He has a real life and, uh, and he did find his, uh, you know, his wife and, and uh, I mean, it worked out, right? <laughs> yeah. I think she found him. <laughs> she found him. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I, I learned an early lesson about Steve and that was right after we, we went public. I walked over to Steve's house because we were, we were within walking distance in Los Gatos at the time. And, you know, Steve was a minimalist and he had a beautiful English Tudor home and he had a Maxwell Parish painting and a, and a Tiffany lamp and a, you know, nice Swedish sound system, but then a, a dresser and a mattress on the floor. Wow. And I, I walked up to the house and there was a piece of paper on the front lawn, which was, was uncharacteristic. So I picked it up. And it, it was an Apple stock certificate. Uh, I think it was 400 million shares. Uh, <laughs> and I said, Steve, uh, this, must, this belongs to you. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. Must have blown out the window. And he just opened the drawer and he threw it in. So I knew from the very beginning to Steve it was never really about money. It was about changing the world. That's right. And, and, and I, ironically, or same story in a different um, man different way. When I was at his funeral at the Stanford Chapel, Larry Ellison got up and told the story. And he said, Steve and I, he were walking along the beach in Hawaii and talking about Apple. And Larry said to Steve, um, you know, Steve, between your net worth and my net worth, we could do a takeover of Apple and we could make a lot of money. And Larry said, Steve stopped him in his spot, right there on the spot, looked at him and he said, he goes, Larry, we don't need it. We don't need any more money. We need to do this because it's the right thing to do. So, so there's 30 years difference. The same Steve. Huh. Remarkable. I mean, you, you do see those pictures, the Tiffany Lamb and the minimalism that you mentioned, but you do find it hard to believe <laughs> that people could. I mean, really, because the uh, you know, I think he mentioned that people at Apple they became millionaires overnight and they started changing. And uh, you know, you probably saw that. It reminds me of like. And then, like in the movie Goodfellas, you know, <laughs> all of a sudden people, they're, what are you doing? You know, uh, try to keep a low, keep a yeah. low profile here. And uh, well, not so much, Steve. In fact, my mom's favorite story: um, I had gotten Apple's permission to open a retail store way back in, I think eighty four, eighty five. It was right after Apple went public again, and both Wozniak and Jobs uh, flew down for the opening. They arrived in a limousine. And uh, my mom and I went up to meet Steve, and Steve said to me, he said, um, neither was and I have any money. Can you pay the driver? <laughs> and they were, they were both worth about, you know, I don't know, $400 million or something at the time. Remarkable. 
<laughs> it's, uh, I mean, but you're, you just have an interesting life story. And, and again, your book, Rewiring Education, How Technology Can Unlock Every Student's Potential. Our special guest, John Couch, who is Apple's first vice president of education. And uh, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you must have a million memories as well, but you're, are you, you're always thinking forward too. I mean, and the fact that you helped with uh, the Christian school and uh, for 10 years and doing all that. And uh, did you, did you feel you were called to be a pastor or something at one time or what? Uh, n- not really. I thought for one time, to be honest, that in order to be a good Christian, you, you needed to be a pastor. Um, but those doors closed. Uh, for me. And, uh, you know, I, I have a very simple philosophy and that is, you know, to live for Christ is to live for others. Yes. And, and, you know, I mean, look, Waz, before we went public, sat in the cafeteria and sold his shares to people who didn't have any. Wow. I mean, that's the character that, that Waz has. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I, Gets a little bit personal, but, you know, my father was killed when I was five. Mm. I lost a sister who was seven when I was nine, and I lost another sister when I was 11. Mm. So life has always been a gift to me. Yes. You know, sort of a journey, sort of a, sort of a, a, a tent life. And it, it was really interesting. I was reading a book the other day, and, um, and it said that there's no, there's no Hebrew word for have. Hmm. Uh, and so I've always felt that everything that I have quote is a gift and I ain't taking it with me. Right. That's right. Mm-hmm. So, so how do I help? How do I, you know, how do I become a good role model for my four kids and 16 grandkids? And, and uh, how do I help people on their journeys uh, in the realization that we probably are on this, planet for a very short period of time for sure and um so um i've been really blessed with with the experiences that we've shared um i'm I'm gonna be 71 in this in the the fall and uh, my grandmother lived to be 102 my mom's 90 my mom's (laughs) 91 so i've got some time hopefully to give back you sure did those are good genes by the way very good genes it's sicilian you know (laughs) And you, you had told me earlier, though, before the, the interview that, you know, you were on an ATV, so you're still doing fun stuff and going strong at age uh, 71, and, and uh, good for you. Well, <laughs> I, think, I think it was a pretty good wake-up call. <laughs> <laughs> uh, remarkable. Can I ask you, uh, John, you know, do you think that we're smarter today because of technology, or do you think that, you know, I mean, you, you ask people, you know, how could you get by without a an iPhone or an iPad that we have today, but people did, of course. And so what do you think the difference is between how people learn and just, I mean, I know we have the capacity to be smarter with all this different technology, but what are the pros and cons? Are we smarter today? Wow. Boy, there's so many different angles you could answer that uh, with. Um, I think one of the things for me that where my life has really changed as I've now backed off on, from a full-time employment and all my kids are grown and I live by myself, I start each day uh, with about an hour to two hours of quiet time of just no phones, no technology, uh, reading, journaling. Um, in the last two and a half years, 
I've completed 16 journals. I've written 21 songs that are in iTunes. That's great. And, and uh, I just realized that prior to this, my life was so busy that I never really had time to sit still and be quiet and, uh, and just reflect. Um, so I think that's an important part of life. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, so if I were to answer it relative to that, if people aren't doing that, whether it's meditation or some form of self awareness of, of, of slowing life down and, and asking the big questions, what, what's my purpose in life? Um, we're probably not smarter. That's a great answer. You know, on the other hand, Obviously, with the technology, um, the time it takes to get an answer to a, a, a problem is really diminished. So from that perspective, we probably are, are smarter because we've absorbed a lot, a lot more content. Because you talk about motivation in the book, but I just have to ask, it's important, okay? Because you know how people say, well, you know, I, first of all, I like coffee, okay? Uh, a little too much. And so let's just say you go to Dunkin' Donuts and uh, they say that they put stuff in the coffee to make you really, really like the coffee and to want to, uh, you know, it's almost addictive. You know, a lot of people have come out about that in uh, technology, of course, where you could be used to for such good. And that's what you use it for, for education and so forth. And we want everyone to, you know, to be rewired to, to unlock their potential. But do you worry at all about, the way that some of the, uh, you know, Silicon Valley and, and some of the apps today and how it, it can hook you, it can hook kids, it can hook adults to the point where you're beholden to it almost. Like uh, there's certain colors that you see where it's Pavlov's dog and you react and respond to it as opposed to, now you said, you know, of course the answer to all this is, is find some quiet time here and try to get real with, uh, <laughs> you know, for us, get real with God and, and or, or meditate and, and uh but are you concerned at all about how people are looking at uh, the addictive factors of technology? Well, we can be a slave to many, many things. Um, and certainly we can be with technology. Uh, but you know, this has been true for, you know, since history, right? Um, you know, the technology can be used to, lasers can be used to destroy or they can be used to repair, you know, repair. Um, so again, I think it really gets back down to the character of an individual. And, uh, you know, we really haven't talked much about character and one of the exciting mm. things, uh, in the, in the technology that I'm looking at or the pedagogy that I'm looking at, um, it starts with me, my family, my community, my world, my purpose. Mm. And, uh, it, it was developed by a, but, uh, by a company called Notion in Mexico with probably about 40 Apple Distinguished Educators and Mimi and Noel Trainer, And uh, you're the student at age three, by the time they were five, have been introduced to, I forgot what it was, a dozen or 18 different countries where they have avatars for every age and every nationality. And they have over 2,000 augmented reality learning activities. So... I, I, you know, I like their, their curriculum because it, it does deal with character um, and uh, prepares students to be, you know, contributors to society rather than users of society. 
It's so it's so important. I mean, and that whole about Steve Jobs that once you look at life and you see it and you could change it. Of course, he's famous for saying and that you'll never be the same. If you just look at it, something that you know, you're in this uh, little world, you don't want to bump into the walls or anything like that. And so uh, constantly looking at technology as a way to change things for the better. And uh, I mean, that's what you've lived your whole life. That's what you're all about. Well, that's what Steve was all about. And I was fortunate enough to have met him uh, at 29. And, uh, you know, I always, I think I was 30 by the time I joined the company because my birthday occurred right there. And I always kid people that I raised the average age of the company two years. Uh, <laughs> it was a young company. Um, you know, the, we had two programmers who came to work at three o'clock in the afternoon because that's when high school got out. So it was, I was very blessed to be part of that and, uh, and to be supported by Steve. And uh, Steve believed in me and challenged me. And I was able to accomplish things that I didn't even know I was capable of. Yeah, he saw something in you. I mean, I just think about that. A visionary who could see things uh, maybe even hundreds of years down the future. And, and then he was able to see that in you as well. And uh, I mean, I think, I think in everyone, you in know, everybody. Uh, yeah. Um, he managed by uh, belief in you could do something you didn't even think you could do because he yeah. saw it in you. <laughs> there are not a lot of people. I mean, not a lot of people. He's one out of a billion. <laughs> yeah. Maybe pretty, a few billion. Pretty, very unique, very unique. You um, miss him? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd get that, at least in the early days, you'd get that 2 o'clock morning call and say, you need to do this. And, <laughs> and, and you'd have to say, well, Steve, um, you know, that's my responsibility. If you want to do that, you can remove me and you can do it. But until then, you got to let me do my job. And, wow. And I think that's, and I've, that's what Steve expected, too. I mean, when I came back in 2002, you know, he said, you know, John, he says, I, I need people around me that will stand up to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't think too many people ever heard, heard that. Yeah, I'm, I'm there. I mean, that's remarkable because you hear some of the stories that uh, – but yeah, yeah, he probably appreciated that. Now, before we let you go, John, and, and I want to say once again, the book by John Couch, who is our special guest, Apple's first vice president of education. He has a special book. Go get it. It's called Rewiring Education, How Technology Can Unlock Every Student's Potential. So before we let you go, I want to ask you, and this is a, a, an abridged, abbreviated version here. Uh, can you tell us where you think that if you could take us for a little ride into the future? how you think that technology is going to change uh, education? Well, first and foremost, I don't believe education is going to change top down. It's going to change bottom up. And that was the purpose of this book was to get a conversation started. We've already started on the second book called Education Rewired, which will be case studies of innovation and uniqueness uh, in the classroom all around the world so that parents can also see what can be done and then challenge their own, you know, their own schools that say, well, why, do, why don't we have a maker lab? Uh, why, don't, why don't we have this? Um, so I, I'm thinking an idea that I have that I would like to explore is that of a micro school. Uh, about 12 students together, different ages, with a mentor. And micro schools could exist within 
the YMCA, within a church, within a school, within a library, within a community, within home. home. So that's something that we're doing some research on and kind of exploring. And I like to think of it as the, you know, sort of the Uber for, uh, for education because there's a lot of very, very talented people out there. I just met one who solved the millennium problem at Caltech <laughs> who, who would very much like to be a mentor for a handful of students. And it would be all challenge-based. It would all be, you know, uh, they would take on uh, unique challenges. And um, so that's, that's what I'm, I'm looking at. That's what I'm exploring. Now, at the same time, I'm hoping that the technology infrastructure, the pedagogical infrastructure will get to the point where we will be able to empower the teacher by delivering the appropriate learning activity to the individual student. Because the I teacher, like that. teacher can't do that today. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, I mean, so the, you know, the example they use in the book is, you know, one kid reading at the eighth grade level, one kid reading at the first grade level, six different reading levels in the classroom. Uh, there's not enough time in a 40 hour week for the teacher to find the appropriate learning activity for all six of those levels. So what do we do? We teach to the average. And yet Todd Rose's research shows there is no such thing as average. So we've got a fundamental flaw uh, in that we're asking our teachers to fundamentally, you know, perform a miracle on a week by week basis. No kidding. So I'm well, hoping that, that <laughs> I'm hoping that technology can address that problem uh, within the existing schools, and then uh, you know maybe we can go back. You know, we can go back in the future. We can go back to the past a little bit and say, is there room for micro schools? Such a it's a good comment. I mean, I picture I don't know. I mean, sometimes I let myself think it's a dangerous thing, but sometimes I picture the you know brain scans and and people wired up and and really having like a hard wire to the brain and how we learn and and to be able to detect oh this person is uh, you know has a gift here and this uh, and just from brain scans. I don't know if we if that'll ever happen. <laughs> well, you know, I we there, in my in my talks I have an MIT study that did uh, monitor the brain of a student for a week, and found that his brain was flatlined, uh, sleeping in class and watching TV, <laughs> and and yet when he slept, the brain was wild with activity. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the the problem is we haven't even integrated the research that we now know about the brain or about learning into our classrooms. So we haven't even, you know, we haven't even leveraged what we know today in the classroom. So, and it's true. uh, Do we we only use 10%? (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, uh, that's why I say, you know, I don't believe education is going to change top. It's going to change bottom up as parents like yourself become more aware of one, the technologies out there, or two, how important motivation and grit and perseverance and and belief in the student, um, how important those elements are, and start asking new questions. You know, Elon Musk has started his own school for his kids. Um, so there's a. I like to say that the revolution has started. It's just not equally distributed. Yeah. I'm, aren't you glad you went to horticulture where you took an interest in that? And then that's where you learned about, uh, you know, programming. I mean, it all started. That's, in- that's one of those, that's one of those dots when you look back and you go, how in the heck did I end up in a class called horticultural science? One <laughs> it's you know? remarkable. It really yeah. is. 
I can still remember the teacher. He wasn't even a professor. He was, <laughs> he was Mr. James. He had flaming red hair and he wore pink bow ties, you know, and a wild shirt. And I'm going, man, if this is what computer programming is all about, I'm in trouble. God works in mysterious ways, huh? I mean, and that started everything. John Couch, our special guest, he's Apple's first vice president of education. His book is called Rewiring Education, How Technology Can Unlock Every Student's Potential. Go get it. You're a piece of history. You really are. And uh, we appreciate you sharing your uh, your life story with us. And, uh, and there's more to come, I'm sure. Uh, thank you for being a part of our program. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity and as I say in the book, be the change. Our sponsors with over 90 years experience in developing audio electronics. Bayer Dynamics stands for innovative audio products with the highest sound quality and pioneering technology. Two business divisions, consumer and installation, provide tailored solutions for professional and private users. All products are developed in Germany and primarily manufactured by hand. From headphones to microphones and conference and interpretation systems. For more information, please visit north-america.bairdynamic.com. And by Vocal Booth to Go carries a complete line of products and accessories specifically designed for voiceover actors, audio professionals, podcasters, producers, and studio owners to help them get professional results for their clients. It's your go-to place for sound treatment, soundproofing, portable, and mobile vocal booths. Visit VocalBoothToGo.com for more information. And by Hamilton Stands, founded in 1883 in Hamilton, Ohio, Hamilton Stands is the oldest music and instrument stand maker in the world. They offer a broad range of sheet music stands, band and orchestra instrument stands, and combo stands, including mic stands, guitar and keyboard stands, and accessories. In fact, the broadcast you're listening to is made using a Hamilton stage rocker mic stand. Visit HamiltonStands.com. And Oralex Acoustics has one mission, to make you sound your best. Thousands of satisfied Oralex customers have experienced improved acoustics, along with free expert advice, total sound control products from Oralex. Enjoy widespread use among prominent artists, producers, engineers, and corporations worldwide. Remember, it's not your gear, it's the room. Visit Oralex.com for more information. And great audio starts with great gear. And Zoom's 30-year reputation promises quality and affordability. Visit zoom-na.com today for recorders, audio interfaces, effects pedals, and more. We're Zoom, and we're for creators. 